0: I'd like to read some verses um, from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, which you'll find if you're using the copy of the Bible that's in the pew, you'll find on page 1134. Page 1134, and I want to read from verse 12 to verse 17. It's quite a short section. Romans 8 and verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. with our spirit, that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. On recent Sunday evenings, we've been following a very short series of four, and this is the last in the series of four, in which we've been looking at some important Christian doctrines. If you want the technical terms, the doctrines we've been looking at are justification, sanctification, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and this evening, adoption. What we've actually been talking about in practical terms are the themes that I am accepted, I am delivered, I am not alone, and this evening, the theme of I belong. It's not a specifically Easter Sunday theme but it seems quite appropriate all the same because the isolation and abandonment of Jesus at the cross brings for us through faith in him a new sense of acceptance of reconciliation and peace with God and the Christian doctrine of adoption the capacity to be able to say I belong is only possible because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a term that can be thrown around loosely, the term adoption, especially by those of us who know nothing of the experience of being adopted. I suspect that for some people, adoption has been a difficult experience. Um, I know for some people it has been a good experience. I appreciate that adoption and the, the concept of adoption can bring with it all kinds of questions about origins and history. And whether the story behind adoption is one of rejection, or what is the story behind it in the first place. But it is a term that's used in Romans, and in Romans chapter 8, the main text from which we've been working on Sundays, and the section that we've just read together. And I think understanding how and why it is used by Paul in this particular passage will be helpful in understanding the Christian's relationship with God. You'll notice in verse 15 of the passage, if you just take a look at it there, it says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. The copies of the Bible that are in the pew will have a little footnote there, which will say that in verse 15 the word can also mean, or could also be, maybe more properly translated, adoption. And that's the concept we're looking at this evening. In those short verses that we read together, there are three different terms that are used. There's the term children, the term sons, and the term sonship or adoption. But there's really only two words that occur when Paul is writing, and writing in Greek. One is a very common word that is used for child. And it's used in all kinds of situations, and it's not gender specific. It can mean the male or female child. And the other is a term which means Uh, son in a slightly more specific way, the son of so-and-so, or the descendant of so-and-so, or the grandson of. And it's the idea of uh, belonging very specifically. So one term that is used in the passage is just a general term for child, and the other is very specifically about belonging. And it's that same term which gives rise in Greek to the use of this word adoption, the very specific belonging to someone. Uh, There's a choice made, there's maybe a contract entered into, and someone becomes part of another family, belonging to someone else. And that's the term that Paul uses here. It's very interesting because Paul is writing, obviously, as a Jew, out of a Jewish background. And as far as we can see in Jewish history, the concept of adoption was almost unknown. It wasn't something that Jewish people would necessarily easily relate to. Because children belonged to the family and to the extended family. There was never really a process of adoption that was needed. There was just a structure, a family structure that was taken for granted really in Israel's history of how a child would belong to the next set of brothers or sisters or whatever should they be orphaned. And there was really not in quite the same sense the concept of orphan because of the nature of the extended family and the way in which it worked. But in Roman And Greek culture, and bear in mind, Paul is writing here to the church that meets in Rome, many of whom will have come from a Greek and Roman culture. It was very different. And people would have been very familiar with the idea of adoption. Because it would have been a very contemporary practice in Roman society. Um, F. F. Bruce, who's written a lot on these kinds of things, explains it in this way. He says, the term adoption may sound artificial in our ears, But in the Roman world of first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no way inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's characteristics more worthily. You see, adoption in this context and the way in which people would have thought of it, as Paul is writing here, was not necessarily anything to do with being an orphan. Not necessarily anything to do with childlessness or any of those issues. It's much more like someone being chosen by a father or by a person Uh, To inherit the name and to inherit the estate or whatever because they considered them a really good person. It's like that's the kind of person I would have wanted to carry on the tradition, the business, the inheritance, the estate, the politics or whatever. And a child would be adopted, usually a young man would be adopted for that reason, a very specific reason. You might be the smart one in the family because you've been adopted into the family. And that's why you've been adopted in. Because maybe the father isn't too keen on the sons he's got as being the ones who are going to inherit everything and carry on the family name. So it's, it's really quite a different context than we're used to. So what Paul is saying in the passage is this. He's saying we are sons of God. We are his chosen descendants. Verse 14. If we are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 15. We received the spirit of adoption, being chosen by God into his family. We are God's children in the very ordinary sense of the word, both male and female. And we as children, in that very ordinary sense of the word, are also heirs and co-heirs with Christ. It seems to me that the significance of Paul's use of language, the two different terms which he very deliberately uses in these verses, is to emphasize two things. It's to emphasize that the process of a, there is a process of adoption into God's family, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at in the first of this series, I Am Accepted. But it's also to say that it's not just some technical transaction in the courts of heaven or something. It's not the completion of mystical adoption papers, and that's the end of it. There is also intended to be a normal, intimate father-child relationship. And that's why the term Abba, Father, is included in the middle of the text in verse 15. Sandwiched between the two phrases that he uses. In the first part, he uses all this technical language about being a chosen son, to bear the name. And in the second half after verse 15, he uses the very ordinary word for child, whether male or female. But in the middle is that phrase, Abba, Father. By him we cry, Abba, Father. A very childlike, familiar term that would be used in the home of many people. Now, I know we need to be very careful about transferring our Western ideas of family and father-child relationship back onto the pages of the Bible. Social life was very different then. Um, The new men that you may see around today uh, going coochie-coo over the side of the buggy and indulging in baby talk maybe didn't quite exist in the same way in the first century A.D. But avoiding over-sentimentalizing the term, we mustn't lose its significance because it is a term of endearment. It is a term of familiarity. One commentator says, an everyday infant sound is applied without inhibition to God. This simple word, Abba, tells us that God is not a distant ruler in transcendence, out there somewhere, but one who is intimately close. It's the very term that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to the Father. And this torment of soul about if there is another way. Then let this cup pass from me. And the language that Jesus uses is the language that Paul refers to in Romans 8.15 here. That Abba, Father language. So what's happening in this passage is very clear. The Christian's relationship with God is formalized as one adopted into God's family. And the Romans of the Roman church would have understood the technicalities of that. But the relationship is not merely formal. It's not distant. The Christian's relationship with God is characterized by the use of the most intimate form of address and the full rights of inheritance. It means that now we need to think of God as our father and Christ as our brother, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. What are some of the implications of this? There are three things, quite simply, I want to say about the implication of this idea of belonging in this way, this theme of adoption The first is that the Christians should have a strong sense of belonging to God. The Christians should have a strong sense of security in that. And the Christians should have a strong sense of responsibility. First of all, just to think about that sense of belonging. I'm amazed by families which travel around the world. Missionary families, families in diplomatic service, families who do it for other reasons. And are strong family units. Those people will always tell you that place is important. Having a place to call home or to think of as home is very important. But they will also be able to tell you that what is critical in the sense of belonging is not merely place, but it's relationship. It's the identity that is forged in relationship with each other which enables folks in such mobile lifestyles to be able to have a sense of belonging. That's how many missionary kids survive There is that sense of belonging to the family, the sense of intimacy. And once that goes, or if that goes, then place and all the rest is irrelevant. There is very little sense of belonging. For the Christian, the language that Paul uses here in the opening verses from 12 to 15 in Romans 8 means that we are adopted into God's family. We are brought into the family of God. We are part of the new sense of belonging forged through the death of Christ with God as our Father. And part of that belonging is forged in the life of the church. A new relationship with God and a new relationship with his people. In the same way in which members of the Jewish community know they belong, wherever they are in the world. And it's true of other communities. We're beginning to discover that more here in Northern Ireland. As people from Eastern Europe, from Poland, from different parts of the world, from India, come and live here. They very clearly have a sense of identity and you can, you can see them shaping that identity and, and protecting that identity. In the same way, Christians have a sense of identity wherever they are in the world. And it is a remarkable thing that when you travel around the world and have the opportunity to meet Christians who maybe don't speak your language and have very little means of communication with you, there is a tremendous sense of belonging. You see, the Christian is not someone who's just ticked off a list in the sky up there somewhere. The Christian is not just someone who's had their name written on some new rule book in the blue up yonder. A Christian is someone who is translated adopted into the family of God and has family, has community, and has a new sense of identity. Peter encourages Christians to hold loosely to their earth-bound identities. In 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 17, he says, Live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. Paul reminds Christians that our citizenship is in heaven. But all this is done in the context of knowing that we are God's children And that we call on our Father. Now we belong to the body of Christ. The family of God. Now that's pretty meaningless if we choose to live our lives in isolation from other Christians. And if we make that choice, it's hardly surprising then that if as Christians we find ourselves disorientated and dislocated. There is through our adoption into the family of God a different sense of belonging. There should also be a strong sense of security. And I was thinking about this for some random reason. I have in my mind the image of someone sitting on the grass in Botanic Park or somewhere else with their daisy or whatever, though it's too early for the daisies, picking the petals off one by one, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. Sometimes we're never really quite sure of relationships. And many people go through difficult experiences at home and work and in church. And sometimes it doesn't take much to make us feel insecure. Are we really loved? Are we appreciated? Are we valued? Are we going to be built up or are we going to be torn down? And all of these things affect our sense of security or our lack of it. Being adopted into the family of God. This is something that God does. This is something that God does. He wants us to bear his name And carry his name. He wants us to be able to address him in that intimate kind of way. With that kind of new relationship, we can be confident that we are understood by God. And however people may relate to us, or however we think they may relate to us, we can be confident of the way in which God chooses to relate to us. The Hebrews 2 passage, which I've already made reference to, is a remarkable passage. The New International Version has a heading in Hebrews 2 over verses 10 and 11 in that section, which says, Jesus made like his brothers, because that's part of the theme. They are of the same family, the text says. Jesus is not ashamed to call them, that is to call you and me brothers. It tells us later on in verses 17 and 18 that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. We are completely understood by God because Jesus completely understands who we are, and what it means to be human. And as we are adopted into his family, we can be confident of that understanding. We can be confident and be secure in the knowledge that we receive a father's care. Jesus was at great pains to explain to the disciples that they should think of God as their father. It wasn't a completely new concept to them, but the way in which Jesus pushed it, promoted it, kept driving it home, was radically new. And so he says to them in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, your heavenly father knows what you need. He says to them in chapter 7, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And one of the things that Jesus wanted to impress on his disciples was that they can be secure in the knowledge that they will receive a father's care. And we can be secure in the knowledge that we receive a father's love. John reflects on this theme in his first letter, 1 John 3, in the opening verses. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are, he says. Partly out of this, when you come to the end of Romans chapter 8, you have this great song of confidence that comes at the end of this passage. It's a passage which many people find hugely helpful and encouraging. It's the passage that talks about how we know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you just take a look at that from verse 28, he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is in the context of that call meaning being adopted into his family, chosen to bear his name in a new relationship with him. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the outworking of Paul's understanding of the sense of security that comes for the Christian because we are adopted into the family of God to bear his name, to be co-heirs with Christ. The third thing that I think this theme suggests to us is that we should also have a strong sense of responsibility. In verses 12 to 14, um, Paul begins this section in Romans 8 with these words. Brothers, we have an obligation. We have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it, um, but it's to live according to the Spirit. That's the great theme of this particular passage. The child who would be adopted into the Roman family would be adopted in to become an heir. It would be a very deliberate act. It may be because the father did not consider the children he had worthy enough or capable enough. It may be because the person showed great promise. Whatever the reasoning behind it would be, the whole idea was that that person would be adopted in and they would take on the responsibilities of carrying the name. They may well have had both parents alive and well. They may well have had loads of other brothers and sisters and all the rest of it. But this transaction took place. That they might bear the name and bear it well. And that's what Paul is saying. This knowledge of adoption. This is the kind of thing that the people in Rome would have understood immediately when they heard this language. And when Paul says we have an obligation in this context. They understood that. You don't bear the name lightly you don't take the opportunity and the privilege of this kind of adoption lightly. And he's saying, as he has been really since chapter 6 and will continue to say right through to the very end of this book, we have an obligation not to live any longer to the sinful nature, the nature to which we belong, the name to which we belong, but to the Spirit, now that we are in God and in Christ. We are to become, as we thought about last week, slaves to righteousness, not slaves to sinful living. So there is a responsibility, an obligation, to live a life that is worthy of our calling. But there's also a responsibility for other family members. Relationships always bring responsibilities, whether we want them or not. In John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was, for many of the disciples, a difficult experience... It was for Peter a particularly humiliating experience. But he washes his disciples' feet to give clear instruction that, quote, you should wash one another's feet. You should do as I have done for you. And Paul is simply, in this section, picking up that theme and saying there is a responsibility, not only an obligation to live faithfully uh, for Christ, but an obligation for our brothers and sisters. When he moves into the very practical application of the gospel in chapter 12, he picks up this theme with real relish. He says in verse 3 of chapter 12, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. In Romans 14, he spends quite a bit of time thinking about how the decisions that we make affect our brothers and sisters. So in verse 5, he says, for example, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord for he gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God we're all different we have different views we have different attitudes and all kinds of things and we disagree in these things but none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone if we live we live to the Lord and if we die we die to the Lord so whether we live or die we belong to the Lord so he says in verse 10 don't judge your brother verse 10 why do you look down On your brother. Just because they hold a different view from you. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Right on through chapter 14 and into chapter 15, he spells out the implications of this. So the passage is clear, Romans 8, and the theme is clear. We can say, I belong. The Christian's relationship with God is formalized as one adopted into the family of God. But the relationship is not merely formal or distant. The Christian's relationship with God is characterized by the use of the term Abba, the most intimate form of address and the full rights of inheritance. It means that now we think of God as our Father and Christ as our brother. And what are the implications? It should bring for us a new sense of belonging, a new sense of security, and a new sense of of responsibility.